backgrounds receive an unearthly visitation with thousands of cheering kids on hand alerted in advance to expect not Martians, not Russians, but Santa traveling by Sputnik, accompanied by Mutnik. Santa keeps on top of the news as he begins his pre-Christmas tour of the country with first stop, as always, at Allentown, thanks to the efforts of Max Hess. Sputnik, Space Helmets, and Santa. Oh, there's a jolly Christmas ahead for us all. This is the meat of the podcast. Have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is gonna be yeah. 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Traffic's backed up. I got to get off of this road. Hooked on the gas. I swear to God, I'm in my zone. This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith and I'm in Brooklyn. And I'm Lily and I'm in St. Petersburg. What's this episode about? So today we're covering the history of U.S. and Russian space programs, Ruskies and Americans in Spache. And the format of today's show is that we're going to play you a bunch of different clips from different primary sources from archives and all over the internet that are all on the topic at hand. <laughs> Let's get a move on this, shall we? So the first clip we're going to play is just a short thing from a documentary that was made in 1960, which was three years after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik successfully. In this documentary, they're just doing a rundown of how it is that the Soviet Union was successful in like winning at the initial steps of the space race. So this is just a little introduction of like when people began to think about exploring space in a real way. How can it be? In 1898, the 20th century science of space travel was founded by this Russian school teacher, Konstantin Edwardovich Tsiolkovsky. There have been many Russian claims of firsts in science, but it's been authenticated that 60 years ahead of his time, Tsiolkovsky stated that the development of rocketry would lead to space flights. And in 1903, he designed and built this model spaceship. He also coined a new word for the artificial Earth satellites whose creation he predicted. He called them Russian word for fellow travelers. This is modern Kaluga, Tsiolkovsky's birthplace, where today we are able to hear one of his granddaughters, Marie Samburova. Grandfather had many visitors, scientists, correspondents, and authors. Grandpa would tell them fascinating stories of how people would someday fly to different planets. All day long, he would work in his study making models of rockets. Sometimes on starry nights, my grandfather would go to the roof of his house and dream of the day when people would fly to the planets. They were far more than dreams. Tsiolkovsky's ideas were the first scientific theories on space travel. It is interesting that it has always been these two nations, Russia and the United States, that have from the very beginning led the way in this race for space. For it was an American, Dr. Robert Goddard of Worcester, Massachusetts, who turned modern rocketry from a theorist's dream 
into an engineering actuality. So the second clip we're going to play is a longer segment from the same documentary that sort of details the goings-on scientifically and, like, bureaucratically in the lead-up to the first Sputnik being launched. The Soviet scientists were especially interested in space medicine. They wanted to know whether a dog could survive in space where there is neither air nor weight, but only uncharted fields of deadly radiation. camera placed on board the rocket. The Soviets shot this actual footage of their dogs in space. The dogs are here experiencing weightlessness, as is shown by the free flight of the loose bolt in the foreground. This bolt is completely weightless. The dogs returned unharmed. The Soviets were not secretive about their intention to create Earth satellites. With increasing frankness, they discussed their plans with anyone willing to listen or read. And Premier Khrushchev himself in August 1956 officially announced the Soviet development of an intercontinental ballistic missile with a range of 5,000 miles. If the Soviets could send up such missiles, they could also send up Earth satellites. The target date was 1957, the International Geophysical Year, a United Nations scientific study of the Earth. The Russians announced that sometime in 1957, they would send up their Earth satellite. The United States, too, promised to launch an Earth satellite. But in our satellite program, we Americans got badly bogged down. Why? What happened? We had the money, the resources, and the scientific know-how Unfortunately, a series of wrong decisions led us to frustration and failure. We present the following facts to salute the men who understood the importance of space. The failure to heed the advice of these men irrevocably altered the world situation and brought about America's present position in the race for space. Now we present these facts, facts based upon sworn testimony before the United States Senate. It is a fact that the United States could have fired the first Earth satellite as early as two years ahead of the Russians. By 1955, the scientific team under General Toktoy and Dr. Von Braun had developed a new military missile called the Redstone, which was highly successful. They proposed that a modification of the Redstone, called the Jupiter C, launch the promised American satellite. At the same time, there was another proposal that a brand new rocket, the Vanguard, be especially created to launch the Earth satellite, even though with a new rocket there were far greater chances of failure. The untested Vanguard was chosen on the grounds that the satellite should not be launched by a military rocket like the Jupiter C, but rather by a purely scientific device, since it was to celebrate a United Nations event. Knowing the odds were high against the Vanguard's success, General James C. Gavin, Army Chief of Research and Development, Generals Toftoy and Madeiras, Doctors Von Braun and Pickering, and many others 
kept begging for permission to launch the satellite with the Jupiter Sea immediately. They were fearful the Russians would launch theirs any day. Each time they asked, they were turned down. Then on July 29, 1957, this order went out to the armed services. Let me read it to you. Recent news stories which have described certain projects as space flight projects have resulted in unfavorable reaction at Department of Defense and congressional levels. In any speeches or public releases planned by you or your staff, avoid the mention or the discussion of space, space technology, and space vehicles. And so by the summer of 1957, space had become a forbidden word in Washington. The next one is just a short guy that was published like the day or the day after just a news report that Sputnik had been launched in October of 1957. And you just get to hear the little like beep, beep, beep communications that Sputnik makes. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. Here, an artist's conception of how the feat was accomplished. A three-stage rocket. Number one, the booster in the class of an intercontinental missile. Its weight estimated at 50 tons. The smaller second stage took over at 5,000 miles an hour and carried on to the highest point reached. 500 miles up, the artificial moon is boosted to a speed counterbalancing the pull of gravity and released. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. One of the great scientific feats of the age. Okay, so the next clip we're going to play is a short one from a movie. It's from a, a science fiction movie that was released in the U.S. in 1962. And there's just a really funny... I want to tell the backstory about this movie. Basically, it was co-produced by Francis Ford Coppola and Roger Corman and it was like Coppola's first movie basically that I mean he did shit before but just like actual shit <laughs> literally he made literal shit <laughs> he produced poop <laughs> <laughs> basically like they just remade a Soviet movie Corman bought a bunch of rights to different Soviet films and this was one of the ones he bought the rights to and they he and Coppola just re-edited it, but like the original Soviet version of the film was released a couple years before that. It was released in 1959. It's a sci-fi movie about going to Mars, like the world's first mission to Mars. So they sort of like, you know, ex extrapolated on, the, on Sputnik. They're like, we're dreaming bigger. The original film, so the Soviet version, was very communist basically well mars is red after all yeah literally okay so first of all the name of the original movie is the heaven's call neba zavut and when it was re-edited and released in in the u.s by re-edited do you mean they literally just edited the original movie and then did voiceover yes so they renamed the American version the battle behind the sun rather than the heaven's call but anyway the original soviet version as they're like it's about the expedition to the red planet literally and it has like a bunch of anti-capitalist sentiment in it and it kind of shows how like the americans in the movie there are americans in the movie trying to capitalize on this expedition and trying to like sell land in mars and like being like <laughs> <laughs> doing their skeezy american things and being really competitive and 
basically in the end like they they're like the bumbling idiots and they the americans are defeated or something i want to read this quote from corman he said in the 1960s i bought the american rights to several russian science fiction films they were made with big budgets and tremendous special effects they were unfortunately filled with anti-american propaganda i said to the russians i'm going to have to cut the anti-american propaganda out i can't show these pictures in america and they said that they totally understood <laughs> yeah yeah we get it you know we just had to do that so they did they really like sliced and diced and it's just like a really cheesy the audio is really cheesy and oh and this is another crazy tidbit is that they decided to Coppola and Corbin they added a like a monster battle scene you know with like some kind of alien monster creatures that wasn't in the original at all okay and you can imagine like what monster creatures look like from 1960 they're just like scary blobs of like plastic (laughs) or like clay or something who knows and Coppola had this crazy idea he like made these monsters genital monsters one looked like a penis and the other looked like a vagina oh my god okay so let's play the clip is just from the beginning of the movie just to sort of get an idea of the tone i guess the future of mankind is being decided behind closed doors in laboratories all over the world scientists are working on projects designed to take man beyond the confines of this earth You are looking at the actual models of spacecraft now being developed by agencies of the United States government. This is an Apollo spacecraft designed for elliptical orbit of the moon. Its lunar landing vehicle can transport three men safely to and from the moon's surface. These are other types of manned and remote control mechanisms, each designed for a specific function, many already in operation as satellites of this Earth. Some in readiness for the moonshot. Others designed for probes in deep space. A few to serve as space stations. And the most complex of all, prototypes of craft capable of putting a man on the surface of another planet. The wheel was one of man's first inventions and has been with him all of his civilized life. But now it, like so many other of his creations, must be modified to fit his new demands. Okay, so so in April of 1961, Yuri Gagarin was the first man to fly into outer space. This next clip is news coverage of his, like, welcoming home in Moscow. The space pilot whom the Russians have deified as the man of the century arrives at the airport outside of Moscow for his first public appearance. Questions that have arisen in the West about the validity of his flight have no place here today, as the crowds go wild over the first man to conquer space. Major Gagarin's initial function is a long red carpeted walk to the platform, where Khrushchev greets him. Gagarin puts party first by thanking the communists for the opportunity. with a Russian bear hug and kiss as Yuri's pictures are waved. There have been grumblings in Russia about the cost of the space program, but that is forgotten today as tens of thousands pour into Red Square to get a glimpse of their hero. He stands atop Lenin's tomb and receives their accolades. The 
There have been many unanswered questions about the fight, but there's no question of who is number one man in Russia today. Hey, Smith. Yeah. What's the Russian hobby? Hogging. Hogging. The Russian bear hogging. Bear hogging. <laughs> Atop Lenin's tomb. <laughs> oh, God. And like Khrushchev in the video also gives him a nice smacker. Let's first listen to a quick clip of JFK's response following Yuri's flight in space. Yuri. Yuri. I do not regard the first man in space as a sign of the weakening of the, uh, of the uh, free world. But I do regard the total mobilization of men and uh, things for the service of the communist bloc over the last years as a source of great danger to us. And I would say we're going to have to live with that danger and hazard uh, through much of the rest of this century. All right. So this next clip is an interview that the first man in space does in London, I think the summer following his return to Earth. We have a saying here when you're nervous about something that you have butterflies in the stomach or butterflies in the tummy. <laughs> Can you really honestly say that you did not have any butterflies in the tummy before you started? <laughs> yes, I can assure you there were no butterflies, moths, or anything else in my stomach. Your uh, American astronaut colleague spent an unfortunate three or four hours in his spaceship before he started off. Did you have a comparable uh, wait before the takeoff? Uh, uh, you see, we were not in the same position, Shepard in the Mercury spaceship and myself in ours. There was no need for me to spend several hours in the spaceship bus stop before the takeoff. The brief period of time I did spend in the spaceship before the actual takeoff, I think I spent in a quite normal condition, and I think the scientists uh, who were in charge of the flight will confirm this by producing the records, the objective records they have of my pulse count and so on. And I don't think there were any grounds for me to be seriously anxious, either at that period or at any time throughout the flight. Um, you were saying a moment ago, objective records, scientists' objective records, makes me think of something. Uh, when are we going to see the colour film, which everybody here is most anxiously waiting to see? Well, it's difficult for me to give you an exact time because it's not really, it doesn't really depend on me. Yes, but this film is now being shown in the Soviet Union. It is? Yes. Would, would, will you, when you get back home, say, please, we'd like to see it here as quickly as possible? <laughs> yes, I'll be sure to do so. If we could talk just for a moment about the spacecraft itself. Was the cabin on view at the Toshino Air Show, the one up there on the wall just behind you, was that the actual Vostok? Uh, the capsule as such was not shown, but the whole spaceship was shown at Tushino. As to the other part of your question, I can't say exactly whether it was the same spaceship or an exact replica. 
Could you give us some idea what it's like being in this spaceship? How much room you have in it? Yes, it was quite roomy. In fact, it was far roomier than in the cabin of a jet plane. While we're talking about the, the, the ship in flight, um, there's one small mystery which I think possibly you may be able to clear up for us, but perhaps not, but I'd like to try. On the day when you were making the flight, on the day when Moscow Radio was describing you making the flight, there appeared in our uh, communist newspaper, The Daily Worker, the report that the flight had been made successfully and that the flyer had returned to the Earth. And that report was dated from Moscow the day before. I'm sorry to put this at such length, but this created the impression, of course, that another flight had taken place and you had flown second, and nobody has ever dispelled this yet. Will you do it now? Now, I can assure you quite authoritatively that evidently the correspondent of that paper felt he was better informed than the actual people who are in charge of this work in the Soviet Union. May I have a question? The flight made on April 12th was the first flight in history of this kind, the first man's space flight ever. Thank you. Butterflies. We say you have but butterflies in your tummy. In your tummy they are. <laughs> All right, so moving swiftly along, the next clip we have is a segment from a speech that JFK gave to Congress essentially asking for more money. And this was like a direct response to Yuri Gagarin's flight in space JFK is basically like, we also need to put a man in space. Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. <laughs> Recognizing the head start obtained by the Soviets with their large rocket engines, which gives them many months of lead time, and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come in still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. For while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us last. We take an additional risk by making it in full view of the world. 
But as shown by the feet of astronaut Shepard, this very risk enhances our stature when we are successful. But this is not merely a race. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. So Gagarin goes into space on April 12, 1961, and Alex Shepard goes into space on May 5, 1961. Oh, wow. But we're right behind you. <laughs> but we got to the moon first, so that's really what anybody cares about. That's true. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be blasting off to the 21st century. Samus, Samus. emergency Emergency order. order. Defeat the Metroid of the planet Zeta and destroy the mother brain, the mechanical life bay. Okay, I'm on it. You already know where to send the check. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. Are you fake feminists pissed and stay jealous? Men telling me it's suicide. Well, it's do or die. I'll be fighting like Budokai for you and I. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. Feminist pissed the state jealous man telling me it's suicide. Well, it's do or die. I be fighting like Budokai for you and I. I gotta go. Federation on the phone. Solo mission, no audition for the role. I'm out the dough. I be anxious to attack and see that's why they chose me. Ain't a pussy cat. All these trolls look like Josie. Uggs never cold feet. Young, still I'm OG. Someone who can run and throw the gun to the OT. Those who oppose me be loaded up on codeine or bro, smoking dro, drinking OZs of OE. Facing problems, we won't escape if we bide our time as space pirates appropriating like Miley Cyrus. These Metroids invading us like a rhinovirus, trying to get inside of our craniums like some kind of sinus. When modern science can't fight it, they tap the big gas. I'ma kick ass, making tricks snap like Kit Kats. Drop kicking hacks that I pimp slap like slick back. Crack ribs, then laugh till my abs have a six pack. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. All you fake feminists, the state jealous man telling me it's suicide. Well, it's do or die. I be fighting like Budokai for you and I. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. You fake feminist pissed. The state jealous man telling me it's suicide. Well, it's do or die. I be fighting like Budokai for you and I. Hey, now I'm strapped in, feeling kind of trapped in the first class cabin. I'm the crew and the captain. I feel the blast, now I'm nervous, I'm gasping. Sky getting black like reverse Michael Jackson. Next is the absence of gravity's attraction. My assets are latch, it's a natural reaction. Zoom past the moon on the move like Judy Jetson. Two frozen cubes, lemon juice, I'm sipping absinthe. Yeah, I made a couple drinks to take the pressure off. I think that mother brain be crazier than Sephiroth. She like Mousers or Bowser, turned up to 1,000. I heard she's astounding, but I got that aim of Jesse James. Call a nigga Team Rocket. Doc and send those lanes straight to lay up in they coffins out of pocket. Like you probably, y'all gon' get a molly whopping. Got you wondering who shot you while I'm jogging out the cockpit. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. All you fake feminists pissed and stay jealous. Men telling me it's suicide. Well, it's do or die. I be fighting like Budokai for you and I. I'm the fifth element mixed with May Jemison. All you fake feminists pissed and stay jealous. Men telling me it's suicide. 
well as do or die. I'll be fighting like Budokai for you and I. We're back. And we're blasted off to the second decade of the 21st century. The year is 2015. And the clip is, is a news segment um, announcing a new agreement between the U.S. and Russia in space. And it's nice because it has like uh, both U.S. and Russian correspondents. Russia and the U.S. have agreed to extend operation of the International Space Station until 2024. This allows the arrival and the follow of the station last week of an American astronaut and Russian cosmonaut who will stay aboard for an entire year. Anya Ardieva has this report from Moscow. And liftoff. While bilateral cooperation between Russia and the United States has been mostly halted over Moscow's involvement in Ukraine, there is one area where the two nations simply cannot afford to impose further restrictions. That is, in space, aboard the International Space Station. Last week, two Russian cosmonauts and a U.S. astronaut set off to the ISS aboard a Russian Soyuz capsule, with two of them planning to live on the station until next March. American Scott Kelly will remain on board the ISS, which flies some 260 miles or 418 kilometers above Earth, until next March, longer than any U.S. astronaut in history. Whether it's exploration or, or experiments that improve life on Earth, is, uh, you know, very important to, to our people and the, you know, in the U.S. and the international community as a whole, and hopefully. You know, the current uh, crews and previous crews and future crews, and not just Misha myself, will be furthering our goals to put uh, human, humans on Mars someday. The astronauts will undergo extensive medical experiments during their year in space, helping scientists to find out whether the damage done to the human body in zero gravity can be cured or reversed in order to protect crews flying to Mars in the future. NASA also said it expects the crews to make four spacewalks and to install equipment for the anticipated arrival of new U.S. commercial crew capsules in 2017. Russia is currently carrying the sole responsibility of ferrying cargo and people to the ISS after the U.S. shuttle program was shut down. Russian cosmonaut Alexandra Lazutkin has spent more than six months in space on board the Russian space station Mir in 1997. Politics is changeable, and it will eventually bring Russia and the U.S. closer together, at the very least because it is a lot more convenient to cooperate in this sphere. The 57-year-old cosmonaut says going to Mars used to be his biggest dream once. He now says he hopes to live long enough to see a mission to the Red Planet finally happen. This is NASA's first attempt at a year-long space flight. The mission won't be the longest that a human has spent in space. In the 1990s, several Russians spent 14 months to a year aboard the Soviet-built Mir space station. A trip to Mars, for instance, would take twice as long. Anya Ardaeva, CCTV. Moscow. I thought that clip was uh, also a nice example of a sort of theme, at least in the 21st century clips, of like, there's a conflict still maybe between these countries, but in space everything's okay or something. We're going to hear in another clip later how like porters on the ground sometimes poke at that and try to sort of like stir up tensions or mention tensions, political tensions, but like 
the astronauts themselves are just like, um, me and Misha have to eat our powder food now. Excuse me. <laughs> like, and I mean, as they mentioned, this is 2015, so it's post the Ukrainian crisis, as we refer to it, the start of the war in Ukraine and the coup and everything. Before that, I imagine they weren't making those little pokey pokey comments because this is just the start of Cold War II, what we call Cold War II. There was the Cold War where there was, you know, the race to space and competition between the two countries. You can't let the commies get there first because then they'll communize the space. Don't nationalize Mars. <laughs> going to sell land on Mars. I love that. So to go back a little bit now in time, just a couple years before, the next clip is from May 2013. So again, this is now pre-Ukrainian crisis, pre-tension. And this is a commander giving a tour of the Russian segment of the International Space Station. Hello, I'm Sunny Williams. I'm up here on the International Space Station. <laughs> so we're going into the Russian segment. Be ready. You don't need a passport either. Uh, we'll go take a trip and say hello to the boys down there in just a minute. Well, let's do that first, actually, and then we'll go down to the Soyuz at the very end. This is Yevgeny. Hi. <laughs> Doing a little tour. This is the FGB, and what's cool about this module, it is actually the very first piece of the space station that came up in 1998. The space station has been around for about now um, manned for 12 years, but it's been up in space for about 14 years. And this was the very first. It is like the Russians' PMM. It has a lot of storage, as you can see. So here we are in the heart of the space station, really. This is the service module. This is the central post. In case we had any problems, I know one, a couple of the questions were about what type of things do you have to worry about? And some of the things we have to worry about in space are fire, if we had a fire, if we had a depressurization, like we were hit by a micrometeorite and it made a hole, or if we had some type of toxic atmosphere, we use ammonia for our radiator, so there is a possibility that ammonia could come into the vehicle, and then it would be bad for all of us. If we have any of those problems, we come right here, which we call the central post. It is the main heart uh, of the space station. It was also the first computers that came up here that ran the space station. And so behind this wall right here are these main computers. So we gather here as a group of three or six and then figure out how we're going to either fight the fire, patch the hole, or solve the, uh, the toxic spill. And what's cool about this module, of course, it's the central post. It also has uh, great windows right down toward Earth. It has uh, controls to fly in uh, visiting spacecraft if they need uh, some assistance right here. It has Russian computers as well as American computers to help us control anything we need to on the space station. It's a couple of our crewmates back there, Oleg, Oleg Novinsky on the right and Yuri uh, Malenchenko on the left. And there's also a second bathroom here, which is really cool because six of us going to one bathroom is really tough. And so there's one bathroom here and one bathroom on the other side where I showed you. And you can probably see on the wall behind Oleg and Yuri, some of the heroes of the space program. Um, Korolev, Sergei Korolev, who was a chief designer of putting men into space. And of course, on the right-hand side, Yuri Gagarin the first man to go into space. 
So just keep reminds of, of our roots. <laughs> Yuri, what are you doing? Stodielit. Making coffee. Yeah. Oh. Black. Black coffee. Yeah. Looks good. <laughs> okay. Spasiba. Isn't that so cute? It's very cute, yeah. Okay, so the next clip is your mom. <laughs> your mom goes to college. The next clip is from NPR. It's an NPR segment when U.S. and Russian astronauts are earthbound, coming back to land in Kazakhstan, and it's it just gives a little again a little bit of reporter political tension commentary or just a sense of that from the way it's reported. 2014 Ukraine, high tension. Let's go. A Russian cosmonaut and a NASA ast astronaut from the International Space Station are returning to Earth tonight. Their ride is a Russian Soyuz capsule, and the landing zone is in a remote part of Central Asia. The Russians will pick them up, and despite current tensions with Russia over Ukraine, American Mike Hopkins has a seat on the flight home. Here's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. After the parachutes open and the Soyuz capsule touches down on the remote frozen plains of Kazakhstan, astronaut Mike Hopkins is going to get a cold reception. It is so cold that you don't even feel the cold. It's just pain. That's NASA spokesperson Josh Byerly, who's been out there in the spring. March is not a great time to visit, and this March in particular is problematic. Tensions over Russia's military intervention in Crimea are straining relations, and it's the Russians who are supposed to be giving Hopkins a ride back to civilization. Are you guys sure he's he's going to get picked up? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we are we are confident. The Russians take very good care of our crew uh, whenever we're out there. Obviously, there's a NASA landing team that is there as well. Does the NASA landing team have their own helicopters? No, we ride with the Russians. NASA also rides with the Russians to the International Space Station. Russian rockets are the only way up. It's been that way since the U.S. retired the space shuttle in 2011, and it will be that way for at least a few years to come, until NASA and its partners have a replacement ready to fly. But Russia needs NASA, too. The U.S. pays $70 million for every astronaut it sends up. James Oberg, a space analyst and former NASA official, says the Russians rely on that money. The Kremlin budget people have always put pressure on their space program to bring in about 20 percent or more of their operating budget from foreign sales. And Oberg says without the space station, the Russian rockets have nowhere to go. Well, this mutual codependence, this awkward, uh, reluctant partnership has benefited both sides enough to put up with all the hassles. So for now at least, no matter how bad things get on Earth, Russia and America will continue to play nice in space. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. So the next clip is from, finally, real recent history, 2017, from an RT segment. It's covering a new U.S.-Russia space collaboration when the space agencies of U.S. and, and Russia announced that they are planning to build a deep space gateway. Probe. Probe deep thrust <laughs> strap-on gateway <laughs> on their way to Mars. On their way to Mars. 
And NASA and Russia's Roscosmos announced that they have signed an agreement to cooperate on building the Deep Space Gateway near the moon. DSG will sort of take the place of the aging ISS and could also serve as a pit stop for future missions to Mars. So joining me now to discuss, we've got former ISS commander Leroy Chow. Hi there, Leroy. Great to see you as always. Hey, great to see you, Manila, kind of. <laughs> kind of see me. For, well, first, can you talk about NASA's relationship to Roscosmos and, and how they brokered this idea and, and perhaps what other countries might be involved? Absolutely. So, you know, of course, NASA has been working with Russia since the early to mid-90s and starting with, uh, you know, cooperating on Russia's Mir space station and then developing ISS. So this is a natural extension. I'm very pleased to see this happening and this agreement being signed at the IAC in Adelaide. It means that we will continue, NASA and Roscosmos will continue to cooperate in space. And it's very exciting because this deep space gateway is one of the key components of the new architecture that is more moon-centric now. And it's basically a node, uh, a, a very small, a human-tended kind of a space station that will enable us to both explore the moon and also serve as a departure point to go farther into the universe, including possibly, or hopefully, one day to Mars. All right. The last clip for today is a shuttle, what are they called? Spaceship? Yeah. A spaceship containing some Russians and Americans blasting off in April 2017. You can see the engine starting to ramp up. The engine's firing, now building up to flight speed and liftoff. Jack Fisher and Fyodor Yurchikin on their way to the International Space Station. Vehicles clear the tower, getting good first-stage performance that Soyuz delivering about 930,000 pounds of thrust from those four strap-on engines in the core. Getting good performance calls, nominal or normal so far for the first stage, continuing to operate well. Again, a pretty clear day there in Baikonur, so getting great views of the rocket as it flies across the Kazakh sky. Do you hear how they're saying Soyuz all the time in different clips? Is that a Russian word? I don't think so. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, What yeah. does it mean? It's Soyuz, which is like the Soviet Union. The Union it means Union. That's also sort of crazy that they don't talk about how Kazakhstan is not Russia, but Russian space program launches from there still. Right, like a very That's weird, casual post-Soviet way. Yeah. That is the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. Of course, subscribe to us on whatever platform you use and rate us if that platform allows rating. Sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. If you have any questions about Russia, leave us a voice message at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six. For non-U.S. based listeners, we're getting a system set up in the next few weeks, so you'll be able to call in too without costing you a boatload. Also, follow us on Arena. And arena is spelled A-R-E dot N-A. And we'll have pictures and clips of videos and other good stuff from this episode on there.
All right. See you next week. Blast off. This is Laika at his gaps. <laughs> a little bit of like animal abuse for you. Yeah. <laughs> a little light like 1950s animal abuse, which wasn't abuse at the time. Just like sexual assault wasn't sexual assault. But we're going to cut that out because we can't talk about that here. Because people get offended. We didn't assault you. You whip your dick out and people just get offended. <laughs> They're so offendable. They're like little flowers. <laughs>